How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we have this evening to gather together to be refreshed by the teaching of your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we are studying this evening, that we may have a greater appreciation of your grace and of all that you have done for our salvation. Father, we continue to pray for our nation, that you would watch over our president, that you would watch over all those who are in decision-making positions in relationship to the military and in the civil realm. pray that you would give them the uh, information they need to make wise decisions that we may continue to be protected, that our borders may be secure. We know that ultimately our security rests in your protection, not in our own strength. So, Father, we pray that you would watch over us as a nation, that we may continue to uh, support Israel, that we may continue to send out missionaries. And, Father, we continue to pray for those missionaries who go forth from this uh, congregation or supported by this congregation Uh, We pray that you would watch over them and supply their uh, financial needs. We continue to pray for such missionaries as Moses Anwabiko as he prepares to return to Africa. Pray that you would uh, just continue to give him many opportunities there and and give him a time of rest and refreshment while he's back in the States at this time. Now, Father, we pray for our time together that we would be challenged by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to... Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, we're going to go back to verse 20, pick up some things on the last paragraph, last uh, Wednesday night when we came to the end of the chapter, I sort of sped up a little bit because I wanted to get to the point of verse 21, which has to do with the redempt, what I believe is the redemptive picture of the tunics of skin the clothes of skin that the Lord made for Adam so that we could get the gospel in there. And every now and then you have a situation where you know there's somebody in the congregation that is not a believer and you want to make sure you make the gospel clear. So I sort of hurried through the end of the chapter to make sure the gospel got out there last time. And there were a couple of things that I wasn't real satisfied with. And I want to go back and think through a couple of things. And then another thing happens. You know, one of the things that happens to pastors every now and then is right in the middle of teaching something, you realize there's a problem. And I've talked to other pastors, and that's not something unique to me, but every now and then you have positive flashes of brilliance, which I also attribute to the Holy Spirit. Right in the middle of a passage, you see things that you never saw in your study. And at other times you see things that uh, right in the middle of your teaching you go, hmm, oops. So 
I want to kind of go back and look at a couple of things in this last section from verse 20 down to verse 24 and try to put a little fine tune on a couple of things. First of all, we come to verse 20, which is a statement that the man, Adam, now Adam called his wife's name Eve, Chava, in the Hebrew, because she was the mother of all the living. Now, just one observation here I skipped over last week, and that is that Eve's designation as the mother of all living indicates the unity of the human race. She is the mother of all living in relation to the human race. She is. This indicates that there are no uh, homo sapiens that are not descendants from Adam and Eve. It indicates that there is one human race. And this is important because... In distinction from the angels, there is a corporate unity in the human race, and we will see its significance in our study this evening as we go on into some of the doctrines that, that need to be developed from Genesis uh, 2 and 3, and that is the doctrine of uh, the federal headship of Jesus Christ and the idea that there is one human race and we are all related to one another, therefore, because of the fact that there's one man whose sin affects all of us. There is one man, the God-man, who can die for all of us. Because of this unity of the human race, God can provide a perfect salvation. Now, that wasn't possible for the angels. Each angel was created individually, so there's no corporate unity among the angels. There's no procreation among the angels. So there's a significance there. He calls... His wife's name, Chava, because she is the mother of all living. This is further supported by Acts 17.26, where, where Paul states, And he made from one man every, na- every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Second thing I want to point out, which flows out of Genesis 3.21, is the the principle that uh, there's a resolution to the shame problem. Now, let's look at the shame problem. Turn back to Genesis 3, verse 7. Problem, the, 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 the reality was that in their creation, Adam and Isha are both naked and not ashamed, verse 25. Now, is the shame related to one another or is the shame related to the two of them in relationship to God? That's the important uh, point that has to be understood. So at the end of chapter 2 points out that they're both naked and not ashamed. The nakedness is not an exposure to one another. The shame is not related to other human beings. The shame has to do with God, because when we come to 3.7, when we read that the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings, the context indicates that the covering is designed to cover up their nakedness in relationship to God, not in relationship to each other. Because in verse 8 we read, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and Isha hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they're trying to solve their problem uh, through their own solution. 
Verse 10, skip down to verse 10. After God asked where they are, Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. See, the nakedness there is directly related to their fear of God and the exposure of their relative righteousness before the perfect righteousness of God. So that puts a new slant on things that this has to do with exposure of man's inability, exposure of man's unrighteousness, and exposure of his rebellion. So God is going to provide a temporary solution to this problem in verse 21, where he makes garments for them of skin. And although this does not tell us specifically that he gives them instruction related to the sacrifice, it doesn't say that he gives them instruction related to the doctrine of the shedding of blood as it's developed throughout the scripture. It The implication is nevertheless there because in order to make garments of skin, there has to be the death of the animal. And so we can suspect that the Death brought forth bloodshed, and because when we get into chapter 4, there seems to be an already understood doctrine of sacrifice, clean and unclean animals in chapter 4, so that we can assume that there was some instruction behind this that went along with showing the typology. The typology indicates with a picture that the Lord constantly uses various elements in the Old Testament to picture abstract doctrines of salvation so that we have the sheep or the lamb is a picture of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and the sacrifice is a picture of his sacrificial work on the cross when he paid the penalty for our sins. So verse 21 then points out that God provides a a perfect solution whereas man's solution was no solution. And this is a constant theme throughout the Scripture that man's solution is no solution. The divine solution is the only solution, and that has implications for everything from salvation to solving problems in life. So this begins at uh, at the fall. All man's problems are the result of the fall, And all solutions must begin with the divine solution of salvation. Otherwise, they are nothing more than temporary fixes, just a patch, just trying to cover up a problem, and it doesn't work. And so the Operation Fig Leaf was nothing more than an attempt to cover up a problem, an inadequate attempt to cover up a problem. And even though it had some temporary benefit, it had no lasting benefit. And this is a principle we have to understand is that human viewpoint often comes up with all kinds of workable solutions. They're very pragmatic. They make us feel better for a while. They seem to alleviate the pressure for a while. But in the long run, there's no adequate solution. In fact, all human viewpoint solutions end up creating more problems down the road than a divine viewpoint solution. So God provides a solution here in verse 21 to the uh, sin problem. Then we come to verse 22 in the the closing section in chapter 3. Then the Lord God said, and here we have a divine conversation again between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
Yahweh Elohim is the speaker, and I believe this refers to the second person of the Trinity, who is the one who reveals himself. This is the second person of the Trinity throughout this chapter, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. So he is the spokesman for the Trinity, and he says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now let's take a few minutes to understand what this is talking about, because in the middle of class last week, a thought hit me right between the eyes as I was thinking about this phrase, knowing good and evil. So first of all, we have to look at the... uh, syntax of this particular passage the man has become indicates a, is a is a cal perfect tense of the verb haya in hebrew and the perfect tense hebrew is one of those interesting languages when we think of tense in english we think of time tense usually in languages con- communicates two things the time of the action and the kind of action. We think of present tenses now and past tenses yesterday and future tenses tomorrow. But in Hebrew, there's no present tense. There's no future tense. You only have two tenses. You have what's designated the imperfect, uh, the perfect tense and the imperfect tense. That's it. And Through those two tenses and through various syntactical arrangements, you indicate the time of the action. But time really takes a recessed position in relationship to the Hebrew verb. Time is not a factor at all. It's kind of action. And so we have to look at the context to pick up the time. So the perfect tense can be simple past And it can also be what's called perfective action, which is completed action. So you have to look at the context, and the context tells us that when God says the man has become like one of us, he's not simply saying the man became like one of us, simple past, but he's emphasizing the present and ongoing results of a completed action. And that is what's called perfective action. It's the same thing that we are familiar with when I emphasize the meaning of tetelestai when Jesus said it is finished, that it's completed action. At the point that he makes that statement, it's not the action isn't still going on. It is finished. And he's emphasizing the present results of a past action. So when you have a perfective idea here it's emphasizing an action that's over and done with it's not still going on he still isn't it's indicating the present results though of that past action and the present results are such that man is now in some sense like god and i mean in a sense radically different from being in the image and likeness of god we can exclude that this is a degenerative state So he has become this. He wasn't created this way. He has become this way. It represents a change. So that excludes anything related to the meaning of image and likeness. Now, the first thing that we have to ask is what does this phrase mean, knowing good and evil? 
Now, for years, this has sort of plagued me, rattled around in the back of my brain, exercising the little gray cells, trying to figure out just exactly what the nuances are here. But it's the kind of thing that, you know, it sort of bothers you, but you don't really pull it right out in the light of day and examine it too much. And I've given it some thought, and I've done some investigation on some things, and something hit me last week when I was teaching this. For most of my life, I have taught it this way, that the, as I have in the previous lessons, that the good here is what we would call human good, and the evil, which is the Hebrew term ra, R-A, that this refers to sin. And what that means is that, as I've taught it, is that this refers to the two poles of the sin nature, human good and personal, personal sin. The problem is, that if this is a reference to personal sin and human good, then what we're saying here is man now has an experiential knowledge because now he is producing human good and sin. Now, that's one possible option. Another option is that what this phrase refers to is now man knows Absolute good, which would mean that the good here refers to perfect righteousness, and then evil again would be sin. So we have option one, it's human good and evil. Option two is the good refers to positive righteousness and evil being sin. And in that case, what this would be saying is that man was aware of positive righteousness before the fall, Now he knows what sin is because he's had an experience with sin. He has disobeyed God. So once again, we're back to a conclusion that the knowing here is an experiential knowledge. Now, I think that's a problem. I think that if this is experiential knowledge of sin, then we have a problem because God is the one speaking here, and he says the man has become like us. God does not have an experiential knowledge of evil. God has a, an awareness of evil. He knows what evil is by, by his own uh, intuitive omniscience. But he does not have a personal experiential knowledge of evil. He is not the cause of sin. God is, uh, dwells in unapproachable light. And in him there is no shadow or, sh- or shifting shadow, so that God is absolute and perfect righteousness. So we have to look at this in terms of options, just u- utilizing basic logic, work our way through a flow chart in our thinking to understand what the options are. So we have to say, in wh- ask the question, in what sense does man know good and evil as God knows? good and evil. In what sense does man after the fall know good and evil in the same way that God knows good and evil throughout all eternity? Well, there's three basic ways you can answer that question. Now, first of all, we have to understand that all of these come out of the general meaning of of the Hebrew word yada, Y-A-D-A, yada. Now, yada has a lot of different meanings. It can mean to know, 
through observation and experimentation. It can mean to know experientially. It can mean to know intimately. It can have the knowledge to know sexually. For example, you have the phrase, and Adam knew Eve. That doesn't mean that he recognized her across the garden. Because the result was they had children. So we know that it was a lot closer knowledge than across the, the way there. So God, uh, so Adam, so knowledge, yada, has many different meanings and shades of meaning. So let's look at our options here. Basically what we're saying is that the first option is to know something experientially. Well, we can eliminate that because God does not know evil experientially. The second option is that God knows something intellectually or through observation. And for God, that would be an eternal observation, omniscience, that it would be more of an academic or intellectual, a simple cognitive awareness of what something is. Well, that may be true, but man's knowledge of good and evil at this point is not a mere cognitive act. Man is not simply aware intellectually of what sin is. He has sinned. He has an experiential knowledge of sin. So it can't be restricted to a mere academic, intellectual, or cognitive knowledge. The comparison must indicates that the knowledge man now has is the same as the knowledge God has. So what this does is it eliminates completely the idea that good and evil stand for human good and sin or even righteousness and sin. It has a different connotation here. And what we have, I think, is resolved by the fact that we have, a, in this statement, a Greek construction where you have the preposition lamed attached to the infinitive construct of the verb yada. And that indicates... Uh, in some cases it indicates purpose, but here it has more, as it does in many places, more of a gerundive idea of knowing, but the context indicates that it has the idea of determine, determining. There, now I've got enough I-Ns in there. Determining what good and evil is. And this fits the context best, because if you go back to the first part of the chapter, when the serpent comes along, the serpent says, you won't die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. That's the temptation, is to be like God. And what is it that God does? God is the ultimate determiner 
of what righteousness and evil are. It is God's character that is the absolute measuring rod of all ethics and morality of right and wrong in the universe. And therefore, it fits the context much better if the point here is that the man has become like us. He wants to be a God. Man wants to be the final authority in his life. He's rejected God's authority. God doesn't have the right to say that this is right or wrong. Eve began to walk down that trap, walk into that trap, when the serpent asked the question, Has God really said... And as soon as he asks the question, she starts to look at that tree and say, well, how do we know he's right? How do we know that if we eat that, it's going to be a harmful thing? Maybe he's just keeping us from it. She put herself in a position of judging the veracity of God's prohibition. Is it really true that we're going to die? Is it really true what God said, that this is evil? And so by, by yielding to the question, by even uh, entertaining the question, Eve has put herself in a position where she's acting like God and she's questioning God's authority and his right to command and determine moral and ethical absolutes in the universe. So when we look at this phrase, what it means to become like God and to know good and evil, it means to act as if you are God, being the final or ultimate reference point for values, morals, and meaning in life. And once man put himself in that, he's acting like a little god, and he is spiritually dead. He is divorced from God, and he has a new problem, and that is separation from God and spiritual death. He is spiritually dead, but he is still physically alive. Now, God has announced that he will eventually return to dust, that physically he is in a position of deterioration. His body, his physical body, is subject to corruption. He's going to die. But apparently there was one option available to man, and that is the tree of life. Now, this is an extremely cryptic statement again. We see that Moses, as he wrote Genesis 3, certainly left out a tremendous amount more than he told us. And when he talks about the tree of life, it raises more questions than it provides answers. But apparently, because of what God says, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, it would be possible for man in his deterioration and depravity to be corrupt, spiritually dead, and yet to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and go on living in a corrupt body that would be under condemnation and would continue to deteriorate and to shrivel. And it almost makes me think of the character Gollum in the, um, uh, in, in the Tolkien series, the, the Fellowship of the Ring, the uh, Twin Tower, Two Towers. What's the whole series called? The Lord of the Rings, yeah. And uh, that character, he continues living for thousands of years, it seems, in that book, except he just shrivels up to, to this shadow of what he was, but he continues to live totally corrupted by the fact that he had possessed that ring. And there may have been some indication, I've read di different and conflicting reports about whether uh, Tolkien intended that for uh, a point of analogy. He was a Roman Catholic, and there were certain parallels that he was trying to point out, uh, certain allegorical type of statements that he was using in that uh, trilogy. But he is pointing out in Gollum the long-term devastating 
effects of sin. And that's what I think of that could have happened to man when when they sinned. If they had continued to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they might have just continued to postpone that eventual physical death, but they would have just shriveled up over over thousands of years, yet continue to live an empty and meaningless life. So God guards them from uh, this horrible fate and erects a guard at the gates of Eden, a cherub with a flaming sword who prevents man from being able to come to the tree of life. So in verse 23 we read, After the pronouncement that uh, man has become like God, determining good and evil. We read, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And the word for tilling here is the same word we have in the mandate to Adam, the initial mandate to Adam, which is the Hebrew word abad, which means to work or to cultivate. and can mean to serve or to worship, and I pointed out in the other context, because of the context, that it has this idea of serving God through worship in the garden and guarding the garden. But here, it is tied to cultivation, so it has the connotation of manual labor. It wasn't manual labor in Genesis chapter 2, when God put the man in the garden to tend and keep it. That's not to cultivate the ground. God had taken care of that provision already, but here he is to till the ground as part of the curse uh, outlined in verses 17 through 19. So he's going to work the ground out of which he was taken, and then the conclusion in verse 24, so he drove, that is, he ejects man from the garden, expels man from the garden, and places the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. Now, cherubs were always associated with the holiness of God, and so we see that the area of Eden is still the throne of God. It's still the location of God's uh, presence on the earth, and so the cher- a cherubim is stationed there in order to protect the holiness and integrity of God. And he possesses a flaming sword, which the implication of sword in the Scripture is the power of life and death and governmental power. And as we will see, I think this implies that throughout the pre-flood period in the antediluvian dispensation, that God is on still on the earth, his presence is still on the earth, and he is executing judgment because there's no provision for judgment for courts, for delegation of judicial power to man in that antediluvian dispensation. So my contention is that God is still mediating through the angels uh, justice, the judicial system in the antediluvian world. Okay, now that we have finished looking at chapters 2 and 3, and before we get into chapter 4, we have to take a break and look at some of the important doctrines that are uncovered here, that are revealed here in Genesis 2 and 3. And the first one that I want to look at has six points on the importance of the historicity of Adam and the account of the fall. The importance of the historicity of Adam and the account of the fall. We live in a world where most people and most Christians do not believe Adam was a historical figure. It's simply an allegorical representation of the first man, but there was no 
singular individual named Adam, no singular individual named Eve. God uh, may have created man, but all of this is more allegory simply to teach the principle that man has fallen. However, if it's not historically correct, even the allegorical points fail because of the details of the text. But let's look at how uh, the how Adam is handled in the rest of Scripture. Is Adam viewed in the rest of Scripture as a historically accurate or historically existing individual, or is he viewed as some sort of allegorical type or picture? And the Scriptures consistently portray Adam and Eve and the story of the fall as a historical event, not as some allegory. First of all, in Luke 3.38, Adam is listed along with all of the other historical figures in the genealogy of Christ. As Luke lists uh, Christ's genealogy, he goes all the way back to Adam. And since the the individuals that we can discern were historical individuals. We must then deter- conclude that the other individuals are all historical. If Jesus does not go directly back to Adam, then you can't argue that he is truly human. So there must be a uh, Adam must be historic, uh, a historically existing individual if he is listed in the genealogy of Christ. Now, the principle of Scripture is that if it's just proven in one point, it's proven completely, holds true. So that's all we need, but I have other lines of reasoning. In Romans 5.14, we're told that Adam is the source of spiritual death for the human race. And this is represented in contrast to what Jesus Christ has provided for us in salvation. In Romans 5.14 we read, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So when the Scripture uses type, that word there, tupas, means an example. It doesn't mean he did not literally exist because in the types they all did literally exist, but they were used to foreshadow or picture something. So we'll come back and exegete Romans 5.14 before we get too much further. But the simple point I want to make now is that uh, if Adam wasn't a historical figure, then the entire analogy and the entire statement, uh, the analogy between Adam and Christ, and the statement from Adam to Moses are rendered meaningless. Therefore, to understand the fallen state of the race, Adam must be a historically existing individual. Third point, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to Adam and uh, refers to Adam in establishing the reality of the resurrection. So the conclusion is, if Adam it wasn't a genuine, historically existing individual, then there is no resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.22, Paul says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. If Adam is just some representative moral thing or, or, or allegorical uh, idea, then the whole point breaks down. Because the argument is that because of Adam's decision, death entered, physical death entered the human race. Verse 21 of that chapter. 
For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And there we see, because of the context, that the death spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15:21 is physical death. This isn't spiritual death. It's physical death because the subject is physical bodily resurrection. So we understand that uh, Adam had to be a literal, historical individual in order to undergird the, the veracity of the doctrine of physical bodily resurrection. Then again in chat, that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, down in verse 45 we read, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. And that is a quote from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Paul again draws a parallel and an analogy between uh, the first Adam and the second Adam. And since the first Adam is a historically existing individual, the first Adam must be as well. Otherwise, the parallel breaks down. And all you're doing is simply moralizing, and it would divorce the text from any absolute meaning. Okay, that's the third point, that the significance and necessity of the resurrection of Christ is built on the reality of the historical existence of Adam. Fourth point, the importance of marriage as a divine institution and the understanding of both marriage and divorce is built on a historical, historically existing Adam and Eve, Matthew 19, 1 through 6. Matthew 19, 1 through 6, when the Pharisees questioned Jesus about whether or not there's a valid basis for divorce, and I'm not going to get into that subject, his answer to them is given in 19.4. He's answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's from Genesis 1.26 to 28. That's from the first chapter of Genesis. Now remember, we live in an age when liberalism has assaulted the his historicity of the first two chapters of Genesis as there's a conflict between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They're written by two different people, two different names for God, probably uh, written several hundred years separate from each other, and there's all these contradictions. And yet Jesus, when he answers the question about divorce, is going to quote in verse 4 from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and in verse 5, he's going to quote from Genesis 2, uh, 27. He's going to quote from the last, or excuse me, Genesis 2, 24. He's going to quote from the last verse in chapter 2, showing that he doesn't see a contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that they are complementary accounts of the same creation. So Jesus says, uh, first of all, he made them male and female and for, said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So his whole teaching on marriage and divorce is based on understanding the uh, historical existence of Adam and Eve and the veracity of the creation accounts. So if you take away the historicity of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, then Jesus is lying or he's deceived, or he's ignorant, 
but he certainly wouldn't be perfect deity and omniscient. So we can go through a number of other passages in Matthew where Jesus quotes from the early chapters of Genesis to demonstrate that he accepted the historicity and the veracity of Genesis 1 through 11. So his teaching on marriage as a divine institution and on divorce is predicated on the historicity of Adam and Eve. Fifth point. In the New Testament, there are a couple of passages that deal with the role of men and women in marriage and the role of men and women in the local church and in uh, the worship setting. And we've studied those uh, in detail. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 through 9 and First Timothy chapter two, eight through fourteen, and in First Corinthians chapter eleven, Paul bases his whole argument for role distinctions in the public worship service of the church on the order of creation. In verse eight, he argues. Actually, he starts in verse seven. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, and we saw that that had to do with wearing a feminine, uh, a feminine hairstyle, and we did that in our first Corinthian series. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. That comes out of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Verse 8, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. That has to do with Genesis chapter 2. Once again, Paul quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and does not see a contradiction between those two accounts. Verse 9, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So his teaching there in verse, or in chapter 11, is based on a, the historicity of the creation account. And that is the same thing that he argues in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And specifically, I think we're talking about, let me see, that would be about verse, thirteen through 15. 13 through 15. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. He clearly treats Adam and Eve as being historically existing individuals. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So in verse 13, there's a reference to the events of chapter 2. Verse 14, there's a reference to the events of chapter 3 in Genesis. And Paul links them together in two verses, and he doesn't see them as being contradictory at all, so he accepts the historicity of Genesis 2 and 3, and that is the basis for his teaching that women are not to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence, and that is in the realm of the local church uh, or the public worship service. It doesn't have to do with singing, it has to do with teaching. Conclusion, point number six. If the account in Genesis 1 through 3 is not historically accurate, then there is no basis in the New Testament teaching for sin, salvation, bodily resurrection from the dead, marriage, family, 
or the distinct roles within marriage and the worship service in the uh, New Testament church. If this account, that is the account of Genesis 1 through 3, is not historically accurate, then there's no basis for the New Testament teaching on sin, sin, salvation, bodily resurrection, marriage, family, or the distinct roles within marriage. And that shows why creation is important. You can't come along and just allegorize, mythologize the first 11 chapters of Genesis as if they're just some sort of of morality play because everything that the New Testament teaches is predicated upon the historical accuracy and veracity of that account. And if you do away with Genesis 1 through 11, you might as well do away with the cross, do away with Jesus, do away with the deity of Jesus, do away with the authority of Scripture. You basically destroy Christianity. That's why Genesis 1 through 3 is such a battleground is because the devil knows that if you can destroy that, there you cut out the foundation for the rest of the Bible. It's not simply a secondary doctrine. It is a core, central doctrine. And it's sad to say that many Christians who live today don't understand that because they just don't want to be put in a head-to-head confrontation with a culture around us where everything is predicated on evolution. And I'm working on some research right now on a paper that I hope to present next year at the Conservative Theological Society meeting on the subject of the found, uh, of evolution as being foundational to the teaching of the soft sciences in uh, modern academia. In other words, you can't get into anything from psychology to sociology to educational theory to child raising, family life, law, uh, history, English, literature, philosophy, ethics, without those systems all being built on an evolutionary presupposition. And if the foundation is rotten, then the structure is rotten. And if we want to understand why there are problems in legal interpretation, why we have certain political uh, battles going on uh, today, if we want to understand the breakdown of the family and why there's such a high divorce rate, if we want to understand why we have problems with drugs and increasing criminality and why there are problems with uh, uh, understanding moral absolutes or being able to teach moral absolutes or being able to have a, a statue of the Ten Commandments in the rotunda of the Supreme Court building down in the state of, of Alabama or any of these other things are going on, saying under God in our prayers, if we want to understand why we have these problems, it all goes back to the fact that American culture today, pop culture, is now built on an evolutionary foundation and not a Judeo-Christian foundation that sees God as this distinct creator who has a right to dictate policy to man. And at the very core of that, of course, is a rejection of the authority of God and suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So creation is not some secondary secondary doctrine. Okay, the first thing that I drew out of our study of Genesis 1 through 3, specifically 2 through 3, is the importance of the historicity of Adam and the account of the fall. The next area that I want to go into has to do with the impact of Adam's original sin. Uh, 
the impact of Adam's original sin. The first point is has to do with the loss of dominion. The loss of dominion because of Adam's sin, and this is d- described in theology as original sin because it was the first sin, it was the sin that mattered. You and I can't commit any sin. Think about this. You and I can't commit any sin. Saddam Hussein couldn't commit any sin. Adolf Hitler couldn't commit any sin. Stalin couldn't commit any sin. I don't care how evil a man they were, they can't commit any sin that has has a billionth of the consequences of Adam's sin. Think about that. There's no sin that you can commit that 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 even can be a shadow of the consequences of Adam's original sin. And all he did was eat a piece of fruit. So let's sort of get things back into perspective a little bit. That doesn't mean you can rationalize sin. It just means don't get all wrapped around the axle when you do. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for Adam's original sin and all of your personal sins. And so that isn't the issue anymore. The issue is what are you going to do about salvation and what are you going to do about the spiritual life. So the first consequence of sin uh that our implication of, the, of, of sin is the loss of dominion. Man is placed, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, man is created as the image and likeness of God. He is God's representative over the human race. So man is to rule over the, the uh, fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. He is to rule over everything on the planet. He is God's vicegerent over the planet. But when he sinned, he abdicated his position to Satan so that Satan became the ruler of the planet. For example, in Luke chapter 4, verse 6, Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's been led there by the Holy Spirit for the testing to demonstrate his qualifications as Messiah. And there he is being tempted by the devil. And in the second temptation... The devil offers him all the kingdoms of the world. Luke 4, 6, the devil said to him, all this authority, or verse 5 rather, showed him, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I can give it to whomever I wish. And Jesus doesn't dispute him. He counters him, but he doesn't dispute him. So Satan has the authority to give the kingdoms of the earth to whomever he wishes. Furthermore, a couple of the titles that are ascribed to Satan indicate his authority over the planet today. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he is called the God of this age. And in Ephesians 2.2, 2, he is called the prince of the power of the air. He is the ruler of the planet. Furthermore, he is the king of the kingdom of darkness. He is the kingdom of the kingdom of darkness into which we are all born. And this again indicates his position of authority. Acts 26:18 there is a prayer that are, are talking about Paul's role as a Gentile missionary to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. And that word for dominion there is the same concept that we have 
in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, so that you were born in the dominion of Satan. You were under his authority. You were under his power. Uh, Jesus told the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil in John 8, 44. So there is the dominion of Satan to God. Uh, excuse me, there's the dominion of Satan. There is this kingdom. This is same ideas presented in Colossians 1.13, that at salvation we he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's the contrast between the kingdom or the domain of darkness, the dominion of darkness, the dominion of Satan the, to the kingdom of his beloved son. So even though we're still living in Satan's domain, we now have a different authority over us, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first consequence of sin is that the earth passed into the kingdom and the dominion of Satan. He became the ruler of the planet, and man lost his title. Second thing that we have seen in terms of the judicial penalty, and that is that man is born in a state of spiritual death. Man is born in a state of spiritual death. Adam was created in a state where he was spiritually alive, but all of his descendants are born in a state of spiritual death. And we see this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It should be translated, though you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And that is because in the Greek, verses 1 through 7 are one sentence. The subject of that sentence, the grammatical subject, and the three main verbs are not found until verse 4 and 5. And the first three verses are a concessive clause indicating a contrast between God's love and grace in verse 4 and our spiritual status in verse 1. We were dead. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God loved us. Even though you were dead in your trespasses and sin, so we were born dead, spiritually dead, without a relationship with God and without eternal life. And uh, the way the uh, structure of the sentence reads, although we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and then it is in those sins that we walked. And that has to do, doesn't have anything to do with whether or not those sins were paid for on the cross. It has to do with the fact that we were experientially living out those sins. They were the sins in which we formerly walked. Walking has to do, is a metaphor used throughout the New Testament to indicate the course of life. So the course of our life involved trespasses and sins because there's nothing else you can do as an unbeliever. You can't commit positive righteousness as an unbeliever. So therefore, everything comes out of a sin nature. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. According to kata plus the accusative indicates a standard according to the course of this world. That is the cosmic system over which Satan rules. That's his domain of darkness. According to the prince of the power of the air. That is according to the standard of Satan who has exerted the principle of the creature's independence from God. And that is what... Uh, energizes mankind. 
have the, the further described as the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. All of mankind is characterized as disobedient. That's a Hebraism. The son of anything indicates an adjectival or characteristic expression that, that whatever you're a son of, that's what the adjective is. So that if you're a murderer, you're called the son of a murderer. If you're a fool, you're called the son of a fool. If uh, you're lost and you're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire like Judas, you're a son of perdition. A son of disobedience means that all human beings are born in a status of uh, disobedience. Among them, we too. Now, here's an interesting shift. Up to this point, it's been you were dead, you formerly walked, and now it's we too. The we refers to the Jews in this passage. The you refers to the Gentiles. And what Paul is concluding here is you Gentiles are screwed up. We Jews are too. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh, that is the sin nature in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 emphasizes our status as being born spiritually dead. Furthermore, we are spiritually blind. Point number three, man is born spiritually blind, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 3 through 4. And Paul says there, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, that is, to the lost. In whose case? That is, in the case of the lost, the God of this world, that is, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So man is born in a state of spiritual death, and he is born spiritually blind, being blinded by the message and the ruler of the cosmic system. First John 5.19, we know that we are of God, and that the whole world, that whole cosmic system, lies in the power of the evil one. So point number one here is the The kingdom is lost. It's transferred to Satan. Point number two, therefore, man is born in a state of spiritual death. Three, he is born uh, spiritually blind. And fourth, he is condemned because of his relationship to Adam. He's condemned because of his relationship to Adam, not because of personal sins. Your condemnation has nothing to do with what you have done. Your condemnation has to do with what Adam did. And that is one of the most difficult things for a lot of people to understand. You are a sinner. You sin, excuse me. You sin because you have a sin nature. You sin because you're a sinner. You are not a sinner because you sin. You were condemned because of your possession of a sin nature and the imputation of Adam's original sin, not because of anything you or I did. This goes back to an ancient heresy called Pelagianism, which plagued the early church. Pelagius thought and taught that every person was born in the same state that Adam was created in. Therefore, we're all neutral. We all are condemned because of the decisions we make. And that has been clearly and correctly recognized as heresy since the uh, 5th century A.D. Well, the point, the reference point, the scripture... For point number four is Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12 down through 14. And I do not have time this evening to do the adequate exegesis on Romans 5.12, so we'll wait until next time, and we will develop that and understand the relationship of man to Adam 
and then develop from there the doctrine of total depravity and original sin with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word to see that uh, all the problems in human history are the result of one uh, disobedient decision, and yet in your grace you provided a perfect solution. That solution begins at the cross, but it doesn't end there. It goes on. It emphasizes the spiritual life of the believer after salvation and the complete reversal of all of the effects of sin. Ultimately, these do not all come into play until we're glorified. But we can turn back and reverse much of the damage in our own lives as we advance and grow in spiritual maturity. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.